Oh, where am I? You washed up. Sorry? <laughs> Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler. 87% match for uh, your skills. Okay, that's not... Anyway, what is the second best match then? Host of the island podcast. Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That, that's perfect for me. Wow, so much is happening right now, right? I mean, like, am I right? And as of this episode release, the election hasn't happened yet, though millions have already voted. So we're going to celebrate women standing up and speaking out from the 19th Amendment to continuing to make our voices heard at the ballot box and in the streets. Our special guest, American history professor Duchess Harris, will help us understand the stuff that um, we never learned in school. Spoken word artist Brittany Delaney will be joining two of our island favorites, Shannon and Dawn. And Roots and R&B singer Kelly Hunt will fire us up. On January 18, 1993, I boarded an Amtrak train with my best friend, my favorite jean jacket, and a copy of the novel She's Come Undone. We left Minneapolis, and according to our tickets that we printed on the free dot matrix printers in the library, we would arrive in Washington, D.C. in just under 40 hours, which sounded better to us than two days. If everything went according to plan, my friend and I would be arriving in D.C. just in time for the inauguration of William Jefferson Clinton, who had just become the 42nd president of the United States. Nothing went according to plan. Why did I decide to take a train across the country for two days when a plane would have dropped me off at Dulles Airport within a few pampered hours? <laughs> I don't know, because I had just graduated from college? Because it seemed like a cool thing to do? Because I thought I knew just about everything there was to know. I didn't know anything. You know that scene in White Christmas where Bing and Rosemary, Danny and Vera are on a train headed to Vermont, all dressed up, sitting in a posh dining car, singing in perfect harmony about snow, snow, snow. Yeah, trains are nothing like that. You could buy a $2 fun-sized bag of Fritos with a soft sheen of dust on them if you got hungry. One thing that I learned on that trip that was lost on me at the time was that trains cut through America the back way, by dumpsters and boarded up businesses, by tracked houses that managed to stay standing when their cities were redlined, by brush, brown grass, icy patches of snow with crumpled fast food cups trapped with sticks and dead leaves. Being born on the wrong side of the tracks was a phrase I only understood in theory, not reality. I could tell you what inequity was. I went to college, after all, and I read all the right things. I had unpacked my privilege, but I didn't see it. I was seeing America for what it was on that train, but I didn't see it. Around the 18-hour mark on a train with its loud clattering and constant lurching from side to side, you start to lose hope, especially if you couldn't afford a sleeper car. And train rides in January are cold. The windows are cold. The floor is cold. The drafts are significant. When my contact lenses froze in their case because I had foolishly placed them on the windowsill by my seat, I started to question the whole damn thing. 
Bill Clinton was my first president. I, I followed the race. I voted. I wore my sticker. But when I woke up that morning on the train with my blanket frozen to my face where I had drooled, I figured Bill Clinton had some explaining to do. For the first time, I was right about something. That's okay, my friend told me, handing me a $4 styrofoam cup of cold coffee with no lid. Hillary will save us. The only thing I remember from the inauguration is sharing an elevator ride with a young white woman who had the same backpack as me. She was literally on her way to the White House. She was carrying a banker's box with no lid, a coffee mug, a picture frame, stuffed animal books peeking out of the top. Usually when someone's carrying a banker's box with no lid, they've just been fired. But she was on her way to work. It was move-in day. It seemed so normal. She was a self-professed underling. And when another occupant on the ride asked how she felt, she said, I've never been so excited in my entire life. This is it. Bill Clinton was the Amtrak of presidents. A really cool idea that turned out to be a very long, very loud train ride with very little magic and just bags and bags of dusty Fritos. I've lost this metaphor a bit, but let's face it, it's been a long train ride. The other day I realized that when I took that Amtrak trip, I was just about the same age as Monica Lewinsky, that woman, another underling. A woman I never defended because, like Hillary, in a thick, quilted headband, I stood by my man, even when he broke my heart. I follow Monica on Twitter now. I've forgiven myself for that lapse, but I still can't forgive that headband. I've also forgiven that girl who decided to take a train to celebrate her first political win, and trust me, there was a lot to forgive. That girl thought that when George W. Bush was elected in 2000 that the worst thing ever had happened. That racism wasn't as bad as it used to be. That women were earning respect. That Roe v. Wade was assured. The past was in the past. And I rode that train for most of my adult life. The view wasn't always great, but I really did believe that we were headed somewhere better, somewhere good. And I never noticed that I wasn't listening fighting, working. I was just riding along, unable to see that just outside the window, America was burning. And it still kills me that it actually would have been cheaper to fly, but I didn't know anything. You've reached the perfunctory players. As you know, in March, we had to cancel the opening of our premiere production, The End of the World, due to COVID-19 concerns. But we are very excited to announce that we will be launching a virtual online live stream audio performance of The End of the World, featuring Miri the Lava Lamp as Nancy Pelosi. Hello, my name is Miri. Tickets for this virtual online live stream audio performance are available through this link. I'm sorry. I didn't understand the question. Join us for the end of the world, November 4th to January 20th.
Can I be a Ruth when I have the skin of a Brianna? Will life grant me the luck necessary to see my children grow to adulthood, to be somebody's grandmother, to be someone's person, to be the matriarch of my own tree? Can I be a Ruth when I have the cheekbones of a Sandra? When they curl into a smile, will they incite fear in the heart of someone willing to send me back to the beginning again, force my mother's presence at an early grave, make me a hashtag, an echo of an old chant, the essence of a march, another face in the Red Sea of losses? Can I be a Ruth when I have the hair of an Ayana? Will my rest be met with gun-riddled lullabies? Will they argue the legalities surrounding my loss? Will they worry more about the decor on the walls? Will I be faceless? Will I be nameless? Will they march for me? Will they burn down cities and reimagine them from the ash of my legacy? Will they scream my name until I am the close friend people use as an example to remind men around us that I am auntie, I am cousin, I am sister, I am mother, I am deserving of protection. Can I be a Ruth when I look like a me, daughter of two brown parents, backbone of still and southern drippings, a collaboration between the sun and soil, sister to seven other mahogany folk, called sassy as a child, a Corinne, a force to be reckoned with, a smart mouth, one eye roll away from threatening, a single traffic stop from heaven, one hair mask away from conditioning. Will they see the future in my hands? Will they be threatened by how well I mold life from their deaths? Will they decide my spirit is the only thing that will go on? Will they call me an ancestor before I'm finished being a mom? Can I be a Ruth and survive long enough to know it? Will I see the earth become me? Will I experience lightning in my hair? Will I know love that burns like the sun? Will I dance with the seasons until they dance around me? Will my soul know the rebirth of the trees? Last week, my seven-year-old daughter asked me if I was going to die. She gripped her brother tightly and said, it's okay, I'll let them shoot me instead of you. She saw the lights and heard the sirens behind our car. She knows what Jim Crow feels like in her chest before having a chance to learn division in school. She's carrying the weight of racism's love child before the one. I parted through the thickness of my fear to tell her it's okay, baby. Nobody's going to die. She could hear the question mark in my trembling and I thank God this wasn't a lie just yet. I wanted her to know what it meant to live before martyrdom ever crossed her mind, but all she sees is sacrifice. Hatred is small enough to slide under the doors around here to slip into the minds of the kids she used to be able to play with. Now they are pulled away from her like purses in an uncomfortable elevator. How can I shield my babies from the underbelly of this country when anti-blackness is the wallpaper of the the melting pot. How do I tell my children to just be five and seven when they see kids that would share the hallways of their elementary school die for just being while black? Can I be a Ruth? Can they be a Ruth when they are a me? Article headlines tell us stories of how Ruth fought tirelessly until the day she died, how she gave everything to us. And see, that's not the part I'm asking for. What I want that Ruth had is 87 years of my life. I want the love that holds me so tightly that it absorbs my spirit and honors its presence in this world. I want the time it takes to learn how to live for something instead of dying because I am somebody else's nothing. I don't wanna be a martyr. I wanna be a legacy. I wanna be a Ruth. And now, the 19th Amendment in five minutes, a Zoom class for kids. My name is Miss Brody. Okay, you guys know who Susan B. Anthony is, right? She looks like old Mother Hubbard, doily around her shoulders, hunched, pissed, always looks really pissed off. So she's the longtime leader of the suffrage movement. 
also a leading abolitionist, like against slavery before it was cool. When the 15th Amendment came up, that's giving black men the vote, she opposed it and she did some racist shit. Stuff. Sorry. See, okay, so at first, they're all in this one big cause together, and, and they're fighting for universal suffrage, and that's black men and women should vote, and Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony, they're buds, they travel and march together all the time, and you've got a bunch of high-profile black suffragists like Mary Church Terrell and Ida B. Wells and Sojourner Truth, and they're giving big speeches and they're voting on committees. But then, the 15th Amendment passes in 1870, and there's like... Sour grapes, racism, bitterness. A bunch of white suffragists are basically pissed off that black men got the vote first. And all of a sudden in 1901, 1902, they have a couple of big events and they wait for it. Prohibit blacks from attending? What? I know. So in 1911, just to like clarify their position, some members ask the leaders to publicly denounce white supremacy and they don't. Sound familiar? <laughs> but then check this. They're planning their first big fat parade in Washington, DC. They're like, coming out party, it's huge. And then there's some arguments, but then they agree in advance, African-Americans will fully participate. But then on the day of, black women are all directed to march in the back of the parade. I know, Ida B. Wells though is like, fuck that, forget that, she says. And she goes like right up front anyway. Dion says, that's badass. I agree. But oh, ugh, you guys like badasses, check this. Okay, so flash forward a few years, it's 1917. We're tits deep in World War One and the Spanish flu. <laughs> and women still can't vote. For those of you keeping track, that's 73 years of active legal trying and just defeat after defeat. And Susan B. Anthony and Sojourner Truth, they're both dead, okay? And nothing has happened and it's starting to feel like it never will. So enter badass Alice Paul. Oh, so she starts the National Women's Party and these gals are not messing around. She goes to the United Kingdom because women's suffrage movement there is like a lot less nice. They're getting arrested. They're getting into fights. She even sneaks into some elegant high-end party for a member of parliament. And when he stands up to give his big speech, she, I'm not kidding, takes off her shoe, throws it through a stained glass window and yells, women's vote now. <laughs> she gets arrested a ton and learns a bunch of civil disobedient tactics to take back to America. Can you believe that? The Brits teaching us how to rebel. <laughs> how do you like them apples? So she comes back to the uh, yeah, Morgan, I don't know. You know what? Some of the women were lesbians and fairly open about it, but the history isn't clear with old Alice. All we know is that a, a guy did propose to her in 1917. She turned him down. So Alice Paul's in Washington, D.C. She's joining a bunch of other badass women like Lucy Burns and Dorothy Day, and they do something that's truly, you guys, it's crazy. Nobody's ever heard of it. They picket the White House on Woodrow Wilson's inauguration day. <gasps> what? It's crazy. People are shocked. Nobody, What? They're mad, do They throw stuff at them, call them names, unpatriotic, and they kept at it weeks, months. And here's the thing, they never said a word. They were known as the silent sentinels and they just stared down members of Congress while holding giant banners of Woodrow Wilson's own quotes about freedom and democracy. And they get harassed, they come back. They get arrested, they come back. They Arrested for what? Asked Dustin. Boy, good question. Because the charge was always blocking the sidewalk, and at first they get these little fines, maybe a night or two in jail, but then, ooh, shit gets, shit gets bad. First, they get longer sentences, which as you pointed out, Dustin, is legally like, what? And, and when they ask for lawyers, they're denied. Hmm. So they go on a hunger strike while in jail, and then they're force-fed, which is apparently like waterboarding with paste, but they keep protesting and they keep mouthing off. So on the evening of November 14th, 1917, I want you all to just lean in a little closer. Come here. Good. Okay. The guards come down to their cells. This is Okaquan Workhouse, right outside of DC, and they beat the shit out of them. Oh yeah. Chained to walls, broken bones, teeth kicked in. Nobody died, but when folks got hip to what happened, it was coined the Night of Terror. And it makes the American people mad. 
they don't love the suffragists, but jailing them and then knocking their teeth in just because they want to vote felt kind of fascisty, especially for a nation that just fought in a world war against that kind of thing. So people are like, come on, give it to them. Women can vote in Canada, let it go. Even old President Woodrow Wilson himself gets on board. And on September 30th, 1918, the 19th Amendment is presented to Congress and it loses by two votes, can you even? I mean, if a protester ever wanted to throw a can of soup at a guy, my God. But do they quit? No. They lobby and they fight and they march. And in June of 1919, it comes up again. And this time, it finally fucking passes. Oh, and then everything was fair for women forever. And that's the end. <laughs> of course I'm kidding. Friends. Next, they have to fight like hell to ratify the thing. Oh, but that is my time with you, friends. We did it. Duchess Harris is a professor of American Studies and Political Science at McAllister College in St. Paul. She's a JD-PhD with doctoral degrees in philosophy and law. Her expertise is in contemporary African-American history and political theory. I reached out to Duchess for more historical context to what is happening right now. And my first question, what motivated her to get into this field in the first place? I went to the University of Pennsylvania and I met a woman on the faculty. Her name is Mary Frances Berry. She's 82 years old and she's still teaching there. It's pretty remarkable. Wow. She's the first black woman I met who was a JD PhD. It had never even occurred to me that like that was possible. And so just interacting with her was inspiring and then realizing that what she did was teach legal history, but she had a racial analysis. And then she was also a practitioner because Jimmy Carter had appointed her to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And then when Reagan became president, he fired her. Then she sued Reagan. And so if I started college in 87, you have to realize that like, this is still like fresh and new, right? So I meet a black woman who sues the president of the United States. Um, she ends up being back on the Civil Rights Commission um, as another Democratic appointee like later down the road. So it was that kind of work that I was like, oh, this is like absolutely amazing that you can do things on a campus, but you can also do stuff off the campus, like in the world of politics. So I was sold. And the, the funny thing about it is I was scared to death of her, right? Because I was just so intimidated by her. I found it difficult to even go to her office and ask her questions, but I did. You're saying you're intimidated because you're sort of in awe? Or... Oh my gosh, because I mean, I couldn't imagine there was anything she didn't know. And so my junior year in college, I just read this book called When and Where I Enter. It was one of the first histories of Black women written by this woman named Paula Giddings. And the book ends in 1963, posing the question, if middle-class, straight Black men who are ministers, if their platform is the March on Washington, and if middle-class suburban white women, their platform is the National Organization for Women, where's the space for Black women? So I asked Dr. Barry, I was like, what are Black women doing in terms of an organized collective political agenda in 1963? And I expected her to have an answer, and she said she didn't know. 
And that's how I ended up proposing like an honors project, which led to a dissertation and then led to my first book. Wow. It's sort of like, oh, there's a space for me. Right. Because I yeah. mean, I, I couldn't even wrap my head around the fact that there was anything that she wouldn't have known. What I love is that she was willing to say, I don't know. Right. Right. Yeah. And I'm, you know, and I wonder, you know, in hindsight, if part of it was, it's like, you know, and you can leave my office now, precocious 20 year old that keeps bothering me. Uh, or, so. or was it trying to trigger you? Right. Right. Well, I mean, whatever way it, it, it worked, right. Because that's led to like, you know, an almost 30 year career. During the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, I read a lot of great articles about the black women and women of color who were not given a place in the suffrage movement. We didn't learn about that in school. So I wondered if there was something to be gained by not only being aware of what we missed in school, but by hearing these stories now. I mean, I think what we are gaining now is the realization that we need to know the whole story. And what's exciting to me is that the country seems prepared to hear the whole story. I think that we did not have the narrative before because people like history to be clean and history is really messy. Mm -hmm. And we like to have definitive winners and losers. What you often have is a struggle around power. And that's what suffrage was. Um, When black men were given the right to vote, white women felt left out. And so it ended up becoming a power struggle and they felt like the losers and the black men were the winners. And they felt that the only way to enter the narrative would be to do it on their own and not to include the black women with them because they felt like patriarchy um, had risen up and that they had been displaced. And I mean, it's also really impacted by class. The suffragists were actually pretty elite white women that were advocating for themselves and maybe more disadvantaged white women might have benefited from what their efforts were, but they weren't really concerned with that. When you think about the fact that black women had been property, but didn't have any of their own property, didn't have much economic influence at all, for the most part had been locked out of education. There was a sense that Black women were inferior to white women. In discussing Black women speaking out, I asked Duchess about the three Black women who started Black Lives Matter. She began her answer by defining the concept of linked fate. Linked fate is a concept that African-American political scientists came up with. The purpose of the concept was to explain how sometimes Black women and white women can end up with different political agendas, even if they identify as feminists. The reason that that would be is because of who you are intimately linked to. That could be spouse, but that also could be father, brother, son. So Black women and white women often might have different political agendas, given how the men that they were linked to were treated. I saw Black Lives Matter as a manifestation of Black feminism instantly, right? But I realized that's because that's what I do for a living. But what you had were these three women advocating originally 
for Trayvon Martin. So what it is, is like the linked fate. Black women are linked to Black men. When George Zimmerman is acquitted, Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tomete are on Twitter. And you have to think about the fact that this is 2012. And so Twitter isn't then what it is now. And 5 million tweets go around in one day where they're talking about this is an atrocity and then hashtag Black Lives Matter. It's also the first movement we've had that started in cyberspace, right? It ends up being on the ground and people collectively then get together two years later to go to Ferguson. But once again, it's Michael Brown's body that's on the ground for five hours. It's a Black man, but Black women are leading the movement. And the legacy of this goes back to Ida B. Wells, who was an anti-lynching advocate. There are people that compare the killing of George Floyd to the killing of, say, Emmett Till, and say these are different forms of lynching. Black women have always been at the forefront of these things because Black men often have been attacked. Wow, that's interesting. So does that also connect with the fact that that Black women voting block is so consistently strong? Almost definitely. Yeah. It's been interesting to me. I've lived in the Twin Cities for 29 years. The outpouring of compassion for George Floyd. I was actually taken aback by the, like, I wasn't expecting it. And so when people ask me, why couldn't you see it? It was such a horrible thing. My response was, well, Philando Castile was killed in an equally horrible manner four years prior. And the response was completely different. People were sad, but people were not outraged. And when I say people, I'm talking people outside the Black community. The Black community held the same level of pain for Philando Castile that they did for George Floyd. It's just that something in the nation's temperament shifted. And then I asked her about Kamala Harris. I mean, it has tremendous symbolism. Um, I learned recently that she has an action figure, right? Oh, really? And I was thinking to myself, for little girls, what the meaning is just to see her um, in the role that she is in has a profound impact on people's development. I do think it's wonderful that young girls, um, and of different races, because given how she looks aesthetically, girls of Indian descent see themselves in her, some Latina girls see themselves in her, Black girls of different shades and hues still see themselves in her. So I I think that that has value. And if you look at the political history of Black women, there have been no Black women governors. There's only been two Black women in the United States Senate, and she's one. The one before her was Carol Mosley Braun from Illinois. Mm -hmm. The Congressional Black Caucus, when it started out in 68, there were 11 people in it and 10 were men. So originally, the only woman in the Congressional Black Caucus was Shirley Chisholm. And so proportionately, there are a lot more Black women in Congress now. But if we are to talk about electoral politics, Black women have not gotten very far since the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Regardless of how the election turns out, just the fact that she is there has um, 
particular meaning for what some people might refer to as like a politics of possibility. Duchess has three kids. So how are they doing with all that's going on around them? I feel really fortunate in the sense that my husband's African-American, so we have been able to like parent in a racially conscious way that I'm proud of. They seem to be fine. Like our youngest just turned 14 a few weeks ago. So when George Floyd was killed, he was 13. I was extremely upset that um, he saw the video. I was gonna talk to him about the video and I ended up being a day late. And so that, that is the advice that I give to parents now is like, you will be a day late with the technology the kids get to it so quickly. I give my husband John credit, like he was able to talk to him about it, which to me was invaluable. Do you feel any kind of a heightened sense of our heightened need to interpret as things are going? Or is it just hoping that they, that your influence will allow them to sort of make good decisions or, you know, that kind of thing? I mean, they've grown up in a house where race has been talked about a lot. Yeah. I wrote a book on Black Lives Matter that came out five years ago. And so when it came out, our youngest was nine. There was lots of controversy about it. I had been writing things like 20 years prior to that, but it was the first thing that I'd written that made national news. Like they actually did a segment about it on Fox and Friends. And so- Were you on Fox well, and Friends? Well, they profiled me. Oh, okay. Well, they showed my picture and they talked about me. And of course they didn't say very nice things, um, but it was an entire um, segment on the book. That catapulted our family in a situation that- um, I would be out in public and people would say, like, aren't you that lady? Then we kind of had to think about what the kids were seeing because it wasn't always a good response. You know, because Black Lives Matter now is controversial, but five years ago it was profoundly unpopular. And so we'd be out in public and be like, you're the lady that wrote that book. It'd be a bad thing. What was fascinating was that the following year I wrote the book about the hidden figure story and I wrote about my grandmother, who was one of the original hidden human computers. And mm -hmm. then people would stop me and say, aren't you that lady? But then it was all good response. So when my son was nine, like the fans were mean. And when he was 10, the fans liked me. Um, <laughs> and so it, for this to happen three years after the NASA story, like he was old enough to know that society responds in all different kinds of ways and that yeah. we, we just talk about these things. Yes, her grandmother, Miriam Daniel Mann, was one of the first of the amazing black women mathematicians to be hired by NASA during World War II. Duchess's book, Hidden Human Computers, The Black Women of NASA, was co-researched with a student of hers. And of course, the movie Hidden Figures also tells this incredible story. Speaking of books, Duchess is a writer and curator of the Duchess Harris Collection, 115 books featuring stories of race and gender for kids in 4th to 12th grades. Students were showing up in her college classrooms not knowing much about the racial history of this country. So she decided to do something about that. I would have had an unusual background in the sense that, like, you know, my parents were both race people, like proud race people. So narratives about black culture were like woven into how I was raised. 
right? So even if it wasn't in the curriculum, those were the book reports that I was always doing. Then when I went to college, I had the really unusual experience of, even though I went to an Ivy League institution, I had 14 Black professors. And so I was kind of stuck when I went into the classrooms on the other side of the desk and realized that I was teaching students that had no point of reference. And so what I always tell my math colleagues is, you know, you never get a kid that hasn't had calculus. Like there's no such thing. You're not gonna get the McAllister if you haven't had calculus, even if you're gonna be a philosophy major. So your point of departure is always the same spot. It doesn't matter if it's international kids, right? Calculus is calculus. For me to get a student that could tell me anything about what was happening in Black America during World War II, that hasn't happened in 26 years. And so my point of departure is always, I was referring to it as almost like hooked on phonics, which made me realize, okay, if I write these books for young people, this will be like one lecture or one lesson plan on the undergrad level. And then if I have enough of these, the first two weeks, I'll get everyone exactly where I need them to be to then really start the class. And they've been very successful. I mean, right. I mean, you've got the books. I've I've been surprised. Like I've been so surprised that I had the law firm Robbins Kaplan and I had the law firm Mesh Besser and Spence do talks for them. The talks were not even based on a high school book I did based on the elementary school book that I did on Tulsa and they were delighted. I'll say about the books, I have to admit my teaching assistants had to explain this to me, right? Was that in my mind, it's kind of like the way we talked about Kamala, right? I'm thinking about the kids of color who would be inspired by these stories. And so my teaching assistants just said to me last month, they said, you have no idea how this is operating for the white kids. Yeah. I said, okay, you know, tell me more because I, I can't get in that headspace. And they said, if nothing else, Professor Harris, it prepares them to see you as an authority figure because they have never been around a black person that was in charge of something. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, whoa, you know, because I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not processing that. Like, that's not what I'm thinking when I get up in the morning. And then age has a funny way of playing tricks on you because, you know, my students are explaining to me that they were six when Obama got elected. Yeah. So it's like, they sort of have a reference point of like a black president, but like the real reference point for a president is Trump. And none of them have seen Black doctors and lawyers. None of them have had Black teachers. So to even start learning a history at all of some of the things that Black people have accomplished makes it easier for them to even imagine that I'm in charge. Which, you know, I forget because in my mind, like, I'm always in charge. Like, ask my family. Right? Exactly. That's who you are. (laughs) You're I'm in charge. I'm like, you know, who would, who would doubt that I'm in charge? Um, but I forget, my TAs pulled me aside and they said, we can tell the students are like a little freaked out because they've never had a Black professor. And then there is the Girl Scout story that may have shaped her future. I um, spent from the ages of 2 to 10 in Reading, Massachusetts, which is about 30 miles north of Boston. Forced busing started 
the year that I was in kindergarten. We actually didn't get African-American students in our public school system until my first grade year. Um, so my family was one of six Black families that lived in a town of like 30,000 people. So when I was in the Girl Scouts, we were encouraged to um, make flags, right? So you have like the rectangle cookie cutter, and then you decorate the flag. And then the flag was supposed to be reflecting of your home country and your heritage, which it was an assignment that made a lot of sense because the population was mostly Italian and Irish. And so you had lots of flags from Italy and Ireland. I, of course, as a Black American, got stuck because my people are not Caribbean um, and we're not African immigrants. And so I had no idea what kind of flag to make. Then when I asked the women who were in the troop, um, who of course were white women, and this would have been maybe 77 or something like that. They didn't really know how to answer the question either. I think I ended up making an American flag. But when I went home, where I really got stuck was asking my mom what our flag was. And she didn't have an answer. And I knew instinctively at seven years old that there's a problem with like not having a flag. Yeah. I just did not name it. Were you still looking for an answer after that? Or was that sort of like, well, I guess. No, I was I still looking for an answer because I was yeah. thinking everyone has to have one why can't people tell me what mine is? And why does the question bother the grown-up so much? Because it was clear to me instantly it wasn't a neutral question, right? And so I'm thinking any other art project, if you ask, should I paint this blue or green? It's just a very simple answer, even if the answer is choose your own. And so to me, it was an innocent question, what's my flag? And everyone got upset. You know, but I'm seeing the confluence of that seven-year-old saying, what's my flag? And then that seven-year-old becomes an American history. <laughs> right, right. I'm determined to find my flag. You're right? still trying and, to find your flag. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's, that's excellent because only an outsider could see that, right? Mm. So here I sit as a grown woman and I'm like, oh, you know, that's what happened in my life. So I'm still um, looking for your flag. Thank you for that, Sue. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> and I think it's telling that you said, I'll just make an American flag because, yeah, yeah that's perfect. I think that's perfect. Dear COVID-19 victim number 226,391, I don't know your gender or ethnicity or your age. I don't know what you did for a living or what you enjoyed in life. But I do know that you were loved by family and friends who are missing you dearly. I voted for you. Dear asylum-seeking child of deported parents number 545, I don't know if you're okay. I don't know if you're living with relatives or subsisting in a cold building, but I do know that your parents are thinking about you every minute of every day. I voted for you. Dear family living in a church shelter after your home was burned to the ground by a forest fire, I don't know how many memories were lost, but I do know that you have not been forgotten. I voted for you. Dear friends 
who fear that the law could change, negating your marriage. I don't know what's ahead, but I do know that your love will always exist. And I voted for you. Dear young girlfriends, concerned about whether you'll have a place to go when faced with a monumental decision about your health, about your life, I know you are absolutely valued regardless of your decision. I voted for you. Dear victim of gun violence, I don't know the circumstances of your death and it doesn't matter. Your loss is a tragedy. I voted for you. I voted for those of you who are out of work, for those too vulnerable to go out. I voted for the women who fought for the vote and the women whose votes still don't count, no matter how long they stand in line. I dropped a single ballot into the drop box, but it was filled with the resolve to keep standing up for you.
Okay, that's our episode. Thank you so much to Duchess Harris. Thank you for sharing your seasoned perspective and your stories. And thank you to Brittany Delaney for adding your powerful voice to this episode. And to Shannon Custer and Don Brody for bringing your humor and your heart. Kelly Hunt, thank you for this fabulous rallying cry. And thanks, as always, to the lovely Tony Axtell for his audio mastering. At the end of our last episode, I shared that in the absence of live show ticket sales, we were seeking support to help pay our actors and writers and engineers for these from-home episodes. I was so touched by the response and want to send out a special thank you to all of these wonderful people who have donated since our last episode. Linda G, Tina M, Bill T, Carol J A, Lois D, Virginia M, Judy R, Terry E, Michelle M B, Isabel M O, Barbara R, and Nancy H. If you would like to help us pay our creative team, you can donate any amount at our website, islandofdiscardedwomen.com. All donors get a 20% discount from Flip on the Bird. When you don't have the words, let your gloves say it for you. Shop their fingerless gloves, knit hats, and hoodies at flipandthebird.com. Okay, please stay safe. We'll be back soon with another episode of Island of Discarded Women. Thank you, everybody. I'm Sue Scott. Stand up.